Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 through chapter 9, verse 1. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. All right. Good morning. Speaking of demons, demons in the system today. Okay. Um, Good morning. Good to see you all. And uh, this is our passage today. You got to work with what you get. And so uh, we're going to talk about demons and demon possession, right? Because it's Sunday morning. And... um, it's exactly what you plan on doing, coming and talking about that. So, uh, so here's, here's the thing. I know when I read a passage like this, we have a lot of, um, we have a skeptical generation. I get that. That's fine. Um, and so I know some of you, uh, your comfort level with this kind of thing is, is so-so. Um, and you feel that like maybe, okay, so yeah, I read about demon possession in the ancient world. And, and you say things like, well, it's probably just things that they didn't know how to describe and explain, like epileptic seizures or whatever, and madness, and so they just called it demon possession, and, and so it's just leftovers from a pre-scientific world. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. We have something for you today. Um, if, if uh, I mean, there's other people who grew up sort of charismatic and Pentecostal, and, and this is your world. Like, you understand this stuff, and you are like, well, no, yeah, it's real normal, and it's, it's real. And I've seen things that are indescribable apart from supernatural explanation. I'm glad you're here too. Um, we'll have something for you today too. Um, and, and others of you are just like, uh, have no idea. Maybe you like grew up like I was like fundamentalist or conservative or whatever, and I maybe like have deconstructed stuff, and I just don't know anymore. I'm glad you're here. Um, all three of you are here. And I'm glad all three of you are here, and we worship Jesus together, and we don't separate ourselves based upon your understanding or belief in these particular things. These are secondary issues. Um, however, I, I do want you to know that everything I just said literally mirrors everything you'll find in biblical scholarship as well. Everything I read this week, I saw all these different views, all three of the views I just described. You have people from like Craig Keener and Scott McKnight who say, yes, it's real. It's a it's a, it's a reality that is written about and talked about. Um, and then you have people like N.T. Wright who say it's a mystery. We just, we, we don't know, um, but there is some kind of other thing. Um, and to what extent it's like personification or whatever. He, we still know. And then there's others. So like I read some William Barclay this week and I love that guy and his, 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 work, his work has always like moved me and helped shape my theology. And I read him this week, and I just was kind of laughing um, because his explanation of this whole thing, I, I'm going to read it to you. So he kind of, um, and we'll get to the passage, don't worry. I just, I love all this stuff, and maybe some of you do. Um, so he kind of says, 
No, these guys were more like hypochondriacs. Those are my words, not his. Where like people had convinced them, oh, seems to me like you're possessed by a demon. And then they started exhibiting more forms of that. And here's what he says. He says, almost certainly what had happened, what had happened was, he was, was that their shouting and screaming and shrieking alarmed the herd of pigs. And in the terror, the pigs took flight and plunged into the lake. Thereupon, Jesus uh, seized the chance which had come to him and said, look, look at these swine. They are, they are gone into the depths of the lake and your demons are gone with them forever. Which sort of makes Jesus like a, like a snake oil salesman, right? Like it kind of does. It's kind of like, Look, your demons are in the pigs. Look, the pigs are running away. Your demons are gone. You're healed kind of thing. And so like even biblical scholarship, like these guys are all over the board. Um, 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 uh, some of the other theologians, um, Morna Hooker, her, her take on this was, was amazing. So I'm not even going to just read her stuff, read some Sarah Lancaster. Their stuff was amazing. It, actually, it's March. So read some, read some uh, women theologians this month, right? Shall you? Good. Um, and... Uh, so, wide range of thought. However, as it turns out, that's not even the point of the story, is to teach you how demons behave. That has really nothing to do with the story. There is intense meaning in this passage. That is what we are here to find out. And in all of our disagreements, uh, when we put the communion table out, we take communion together because we affirm Body of Christ broken for the world, blood of Christ spilled for the world, for the salvation, healing, and the reconciling of all things to God. That is what we embrace. Next week, hold on. Everybody enjoying the allergies? It's great. Um, next week, I'm going to take a break from Matthew because we're wrapping up chapter 8 today. And we've been going in Matthew, just going and going in Matthew. I'm going to take a week or two, who knows, off. And I'm going to look at Romans. And we're going to talk a little bit of Romans chapter 12 to 16. And we are going to... Uh, look at what it means for Christians who disagree to be in community together and how this looks and what exactly Paul said and, and how the church was intended. Because believe it or not, the church was never intended to be a place where everyone agrees on every tiny little thing. It was supposed to be a place uh, where everyone from different parts of Christendom comes together and worships Jesus as a sign of unity under one Lord. Okay? So next week we're going to talk about that. Maybe that'll shed some light on some things. Maybe you've talked to some people in this room that you wildly disagree with. I think that's great. I think it's healthy. Um, and so next week we're going, to, we're going to go to Paul and see what Paul says, the great apostle church planter Paul, and how he dealt with this. Okay? So um, let's pray, and then we're going to look at the first verse today, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask for, uh, right now, uh, a measure of peace over this room, over the people. Um, I, I pray that right now that stress would be removed, that distractions would be removed, that we could be present here with our hearts and minds open to what you have for us. I ask that you would fill us up, that you would fill us with joy, um, refocus us, change our hearts, change our minds, wherever we are, shift us in one direction or another, Move us towards where you intend for us to be. Um, help us to um, be inspired by your scriptures, to, um, to understand the weight of these writings, uh, and to bring them into our daily lives uh, in fresh new ways constantly. Right now, give us first century eyes and 21st century applications to it all. Um, change us. Thank you. In your name, amen. Here we go. When he arrived at the other side in the region 
of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Okay, um, so there, this is what's called a parallel passage. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, this story is told in all three of them, and it's told differently with different details. Um, Matthew does, for some reason, this unique thing where whenever it's one person, he makes it two. So in, in Mark and Luke, you're going to find it was one person who's called, they call him the demoniac. So if you're looking for like a, a goth techno band name, <laughs> the demoniacs. Um, and so like they, there was like all these stories throughout, Matthew, uh, throughout Mark and Luke have one character. Matthew, for some reason, says, nah, there's two. Why? Who knows? Uh, theologians write about this. They just, there's a lot of conjecture. Uh, no one really knows why Matthew insists on saying there's two instead of one of like lots of different stories. He does this a lot. Uh, some of it might have to do with the Jewish tradition of where it takes two witnesses to affirm something as true. That could be there. Um, who knows? He's doing something that his audience understood uh, it's lost. We don't know. Maybe one day we'll find it. Maybe you will do that work, some of you, and you will tell us one day. Okay, so um, there's another interesting literary device that Matthew uses that you have to see first, and that will shape everything we're going to do today. So here's the first chapter of Matthew. Uh, I'm sorry, the first um, paragraph in Matthew 8. Here's the last paragraph in Matthew 8. Um, there's a literary device called an inclusio. Inclusio. And, and an inclusio, you should think of it as a bookend, like on a shelf, on my shelves at home, I have books and I group them by what they're about. So I have like commentaries and then I have like theology books and then I have like general reading and then like the Harry Potter shelf or something. Um, so like, and they all have these bookends that hold them together. Okay. Um, that's what an inclusio sort of is. It's a bookend which holds a subject together uh, so the first paragraph in Matthew 8 and the last paragraph in Matthew 8 look and sound the same, and the same sort of thing is happening. And it is meant to signify that this is one section where Jesus is doing sort of one thing, and you're meant to look at the responses of these things, okay? Uh, and so, so, for instance... It starts like this, Matthew 8, 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Then you get to Matthew 8, 28. It says, when he arrived at the other side of the region uh, of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. So you have the same thing happening. Jesus enters into Capernaum, and there's a leper that meets him there um, and stops him, and, and he heals this leper. Um, and then there is a response. The response then is they welcome Jesus into their city where he does more miracles. Uh, the last chapter, it ends, the, the last paragraph ends with um, he shows up in Gadarenes in the area of the Decapolis. He is met by another social outcast, the lepers, the madmen, the demoniacs, and he heals them. Um, and then there is a response. And even, there's even little sort of hints in there that it's the same. So Jesus pronounces the lepers clean. Okay, he says, you're clean. Um, and then Jesus, when he gets to the area, the, the Greek area, the pigs jump into the water and the pigs are an unclean animal, okay? So there's this clearing of things that are unclean. Um, and so in the Jewish mind, it's 
this very, I'm having microphone problems here. All right. So in the Jewish mind, it's very similar what's happening in these two things. And what we're intended to look at is the response of the people to the work of Jesus. Um, because, um, okay, um, there was a wildly different response. So I talked earlier uh, a few weeks ago about the leper who was healed. And I talked about um, exactly what leprosy looked like in the first century, what it meant, how you, you now had to live in the wilderness, you were unclean, you lost your religion, you lost your family, you lost everything. You have to live far away um, outside the camp and you're considered unclean and it's forever for the rest of your life. You never get reunited again with your people. Um, and so now I, I want to open up your eyes a little bit to what it was like um, to be considered demon-possessed in the ancient world. In the, in the Greek and the Jewish world, it was kind of the same. Um, so I'll lay some of this out for you and give you sort of first, first century eyes to look at this. And then I'm going to give you some more facts about this whole thing, about what these two were going through. And then I think maybe it'll make more sense to you, the point of this passage. So first off, um, there were really a few different ways in the ancient world where, where like there were some things you could do that were considered to open up, to make you more susceptible to demon possession than other things. And they're, they're interesting, fascinating things. Uh, drinking water at night made you more susceptible to demon possession. Um, going out on a particular night of the week, um, one type of evil spirit dwelled in reed stocks. So if you were around those, you could, you could pick up that one. Um, if you like climb certain kinds of trees, you could pick up a demon there. It reminds me a little of Pokemon Go. There's like water ones and like tree ones and stuff. So if you need an illustration, more help. There you go. Um, also... This is convenient. Parents taught their children that going out after dark made them susceptible to demons. Very convenient. Um, I've told my kids touching the thermostat will do that. (laughs) And turning on the dome light in the van while we're driving at night. Both of which make you highly susceptible to demons. Um, So they don't touch those. And then um, there is... uh, so there's, okay, where are we at here? Um, so there's, there's also um, late Israelite documents that describe three, yay, four different ways um, that, uh, that you could be described as mad. And in the ancient world, madness was, was, was often just demon possession. Um, so even if there was this thing, demon possession, a lot of other people were lumped into this as well with other things. So madness, um, there was four tests for madness in these Israelite documents that we have. Uh, one of them was spending the night in a tomb, obviously. Um, two, uh, number two, it was tearing one's clothes, walking around at night, and destroying things received from others. And so actually the second three are things that my kids also do. And I, I, have, you, have you been touching the thermostat? Have you? Because you're showing signs of madness and demon possession. Uh, walk, they walk around at night and they tear their clothes and break everything I give them. Um, we have fun. Okay, so, so much like the leper in Jewish society, the, the demoniacs were forced to live in the wilderness. They would sleep in the caves. Um, tombs, there was like these fields of tombs that were carved in the sides of these giant rock sort of hills and families of, of the dead would sort of be put in these tombs and this is where uh, demoniacs were forced to live. Uh, and so there were, um, basically, if you read all of the accounts of this healing here, of the demoniac demon possession thing, if you read all of those accounts uh, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see all of these things happening. 
Um, and it, it perfectly lines up with everything the ancient world described as exactly what we're talking about. Uh, so these guys were outcasts, and in Capernaum, Jesus heals this leper and sets out to reunite him with his people. And so Jesus intends to do the same thing um, to these guys. They were social outcasts, and Jesus is going to do the same thing. So he goes and he heals um, these lepers, casts the demons into the swine. The swine jump into the water, which is obviously in Jewish mind where demons belong. We talked about this last week. That's where in Jewish mind they lived. Um, so they're going home. Um, and so Jesus is, is healing these people. And the expectation is that Jesus intends to reconcile these people with their own people again, and then to reconcile those people with the Jewish people and with God, because they were all collectively enemies. Um, and so we get to verse 29, um, and this is where the sort of the conversation picks up. Um, the demoniacs look at him and say, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So there's a lot of background in this sentence. Um, I'm going to take it apart piece by piece. So it starts off a literal transi- translation of these words. What do you want with us? Um, that's the NIV. If you just read it from the Greek and translate it from the Greek, it literally says, what is it with us and you? They're, they're pointing out a separation. We have nothing to do with you. You have nothing to do with us. What are you doing here? Um, you have this Jewish rabbi. Jesus would have been obviously Jewish. Uh, as a rabbi, he would have a prayer shawl. He'd be wearing tzitzit, which are like these tassels on the edge of the prayer shawl. Um, he'd be wearing the tassels on his garments. Um, he would have disciples with him getting off his, his Talmud team, getting off the boat, following him into the city. It would have been obvious that he's Jewish and they are not. And when they step foot in this land, they likely would have been probably the only Jewish people in all of the 10 cities around them, okay? Um, they likely would have stood out. Um, and so these, these men come up to Jesus and say, what is it with us and you? What are you doing in our midst? You don't, you don't belong here. As they would say, uh, you're not welcome around these parts, what are you doing here? Okay, so there's this happening. And then they call him son of God. Uh, what is it with us and you, son of God? Now, Christians hear this word and they just accept it and move on. This word, most Christians have no idea where this word came from, where this, this phrase son of God, they think it's original to Christianity. It's actually not. And when you understand where it came from, it gives it more meaning, not less. Now, um, so in... Uh, in the Roman Empire, there was uh, a thing to notice about the idea of the Son of God. In the Roman Empire, um, they conquered the world by basically marching into a new territory and demanding that the people confess, Caesar is Lord. This is how Rome expanded. They would gather their army together. They would march into a place where that was not Roman. And they would march in and they would say, hey, I'd like to speak to whoever's in charge here. And the person would come out and say, hey, good news. What's that? You're Roman now. See? My army behind me. Or like maybe like, knock, knock. Who's there? You're Roman now. Um, Welcome to the Roman Empire. Um, We would like for you to declare that Caesar is Lord. And you had a choice to make. You could say, okay. And then they're going to start collecting taxes from you. 
Um, they may change the name of your town to maybe like the emperor's favorite mistress. Like they did this stuff a lot. Now you're Lauraville or something. They changed the name of the town. Um, and, then, and then they would start building roads out to your place. And you would get a Roman garrison to protect you. And so there was pluses, there was minuses. You lose your identity, that's a minus. Um, you lose basically your history, that's a minus. There's a lot of bad things that would happen. But like you weren't going to get invaded anymore, even though you were actively being invaded by the Romans. So you had a choice to make. You could say, okay, we're Roman now, Pax Romana. Or... Um, you could say, well, I don't really believe Caesar is Lord. And they're like, well, that's too bad. And they would conquer you anyways. And they would take you and ship you off to another land and re- replace your people with other people in this place. Uh, likely you'd be, you, you're, um, the men and the children would be sold into slavery. The women would likely be given as wives to other people. And then it's all just downhill from there. Most people became Roman. So um, there was a particular thing that they would proclaim um, that had to do with the, the propaganda of the Roman Empire. And it went like this. Caesar is the son of God sent to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. Perhaps this sounds a little familiar to you. Um, when the Christians would march into Roman territories, when they would come in they would, and they would talk to people, they would say, Jesus is the son of God sent to the earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. Um, they refused to pronounce Caesar as Lord. They would always say, Jesus is Lord. So when people talk about the law, they say, yeah, but Jesus is Lord. So I live by the laws of Jesus. Um, And so, yeah, we'll render, you know, taxes and stuff to Caesar because it's got his name on it. Render to Caesar what Caesar's um, life is not his. Life is God's. Um, The people people belong to God. And so there was a whole different way of thinking with the early Christians. And if you didn't pronounce that Caesar is Lord, um, people who stood up and, and who would actively say, no, Caesar is not Lord, would most of the time be crucified and hung on crosses that went along the roads. The crucifixion was what they did to people who refused to say Caesar is Lord, okay? A lot of early Christians were crucified, tons and tons and tons of them, for saying Jesus is Lord. Um, it's, a, it's a proclamation that Caesar is not. Um, it is anti what is going on here. It is we come together under Christ. Now, um, in, the, in the year 63 B.C., about a generation and a half, two generations before Jesus set foot in the Decapolis, this city, this is what the Romans did to this area. They marched in to uh, Gadarasa and to Gadarinos um, and looked at them and said, hey, congratulations, you're Roman now, and took them over. And some of the towns were wiped out. They fought back and were destroyed. Um, others just threw in the towel and said, okay, I knew, I knew it was coming. We're Roman now. Um, and so these people, um, these demoniacs, their grandparents likely were alive and in the city, living in the city when the Romans did this, okay? This phrase, um, son of God, has heavy meaning to them. So when these people um, see this rabbi coming ashore, um, there's this phrase they use called son of God, and they look at Jesus and say, what do you want with us, son of God? Why did they say that? Um, because the Jews also had a particular belief. They believed that one day the Jews would rule everything and their Messiah would come, sort of set up an earthly kingdom and an army that would overthrow Rome. And eventually, sort of like the Roman Empire ruled everything, the Jews would rule everything under their Messiah. Jesus is coming ashore as a Messiah. They see Jesus. And they knew what, this, what these Jews eventually wanted. And so they're sandwiched in history between 
the Romans moving in, taking them over, and not caring about them, not caring if they're destroyed, knowing that the Jews one day planned on coming in and taking them over, in which they could declare that their Messiah is God or be killed. This is the ancient world. Um, the racial tension in scriptures is thick. It's everywhere. Uh, most people don't see it. Most of us don't see it because um, we were not raised in sort of the umbrella of this kind of world. Um, it is, the Bible was written by an oppressed people, and those of us who were not oppressed have, probably have a hard time seeing what is there for other people to connect with and see because we're disconnected from it. So they see this Jewish Messiah coming ashore, and they know that if this guy turns out to be the Messiah, he's going to torture and kill us unless we become worshipers of him as Lord. And so they say, have you come, come here to torture us before the appointed time? Because the Jews believed there was an appointed time where this was all going to happen. All the enemies would be wiped out and vanquished, and the Jewish people would rule. Um, so here we are. And not only, so these guys are carrying a lot of pain. It's not only that, the, the thing that they're living under, it's also the fact that these two men in particular had been cast out of their own community of these people. They likely had parents living in the local city. They likely had uh, wives and children living in the local city. And they have been kicked out. And now they are sleeping in the caves, in the tombs. They've lost everything. They've lost their identity. Not only their sort of national identity from their grandparents, but now they've even lost their communal identity. And they come to Jesus, and here they are. And so there's a lot more at stake than just this demonic possession. Jesus can heal them, but that's not quite enough. They need to be reconciled to people. Oftentimes, it's not the specific thing that is wrong with people that is the main thing. Oftentimes, you could heal them like... Someone who's really impoverished, you can give them money, but that's not the only thing that they need. And so oftentimes, they will slip back into what they're going through and end up exactly where they were before. They need love, they need reconciliation, they need education, they need a lot more than just, you're healed. There's a lot more happening and going on. Um, And so, uh, let's keep going with the conversation here. Uh, Chapter uh, 8, verses 30 through 33. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank bank into the lake and died in the water. And those tending the pigs ran off and went to town and reported all of this. uh, And included what had happened to the demon-possessed man. So there's this whole scene that happens. There's a conversation between Jesus and the demoniacs. Was it out loud? We don't know. Was it sort of, because he says he's talking to the demons, not the guys. Was it sort of um, silent? What, did they do the movie thing where he's like, hello, kind of thing with a, you know, the grumbly voice? Um, who knows? Jesus says one word, go. And the whole thing, all hell breaks loose. Things happen, pigs in the water, swimming. By the way, um, um, a herd of pigs is actually called a drift. just want you to know that. It's not called a herd. A herd of rhinos is called a crash. That's for you as well. It's a perfect name. Now, um, okay, so a, <laughs> a drift of pigs. Um, and they lose them all. And there's this whole thing. Now, um, this is the part where the endings diverge. You expect these men, like the lepers, to be reconciled with their people. 
Because the stories have been parallel. The book ends. The inclusio has been parallel to this point. And this is where things change. And this is something important to understand. I would argue this is the center of the whole thing. And it goes like this. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. And it continues actually on into, into verse 1 of chapter 9. These numbers and separations, the chapter separations, were added like during the Elizabethan period, okay, not, not long ago in history, okay? Um, and it says, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came back to his own town. He comes ashore. These people stop him. They're outcasts. They're demon-possessed. He heals them. And there is not the same response. There is not a reconciliation with the people. There's no thankfulness. In, at the beginning of the chapter, they welcome Jesus in. They say, come on in. We have other people for you to meet and to talk to and to heal and to love, and they do. And Jesus goes, and, and he heals them, and he spends time with them, and he teaches them, and he loves them. He spends a lot of time with them, and they welcome him in. Here, he heals some of their own, and they tell him to leave. We don't, we don't want you here. Um, now, when you read all the, all the commentaries on this, um, all the theologians say, yes, there is this aspect of... Um, they're probably angry because they lost some pigs, you know? Um, but in the end, their response was the opposite of the hospitality that was known in that area in the ancient world. There is absolutely some tension between them all. They had different futures. They had different pasts. They were not ready to welcome each other into different places and to reconcile. Jesus was bringing them healing and reconciliation and peace. He was not coming to conquer them and they weren't ready to receive it. I don't know if you've ever tried to set people free. If you've spent time ministering to anybody um, who struggles with some things and they're carrying heavy loads and, and you have information, you, um, you have some abilities to help. The first thing that you will notice is some people will receive it and they will change and they will grow and their arms will be open to what you're offering. Others will not. Because oftentimes they're carrying intense pain. There's this lack of trust. There's an underlying hatred of the past that they have or the future that they see. Um, there is this in maybe intense, like they see you and you represent everything that they hate. Maybe they're addicts and you're clean. You've got it all together and their life has been a struggle. You've never had problems and, and they've just, they were born into a home where maybe they were orphaned and then beat and then surrounded by drug addicts and treated like an animal. And now all of society treats them like an animal. It's not always as easy as, hi, I'm here to help. There are other things that are happening. And Jesus healed these men of their one issue, the demon possession and it didn't go as they had planned. First off, you have to know, like, this is normal. This is how sin works. Sin oftentimes is incredibly difficult. Sin means simply missing the mark. Things are not as they should be, as God intended them to be. Oftentimes, we talk about how we're enslaved and trapped by our sin. Oftentimes, we are holding on to it because it's all we know. And Jesus sees them and sees their pain and knows what they're going through. And I imagine it was really hard for him to see all of this. Um, and you have to know, like, I, I know what that's like. 
Um, if I have, um, believe it or not, I've gotten pushback over the years, over different various random things, who knows. Um, and I, I've actually lost friends because they would rather have religion and tradition over freedom and healing that Jesus is offering. We oftentimes want to hold on to what we had. Um, sometimes it scratches that itch of making us feel in or better or higher than others. And we do not want to liken ourselves to lower people. The Greeks thought very highly of themselves and they thought very low of the Jewish people. It is not surprising that they would not want to receive help from Jesus. It is not. But it didn't stop Jesus from trying. It didn't stop Jesus from telling his people, look, we're going across the pond. We're going to take this thing to these people. And he goes and it doesn't go well. And maybe you're here and you know people whom you've worked to free from various things. Maybe it's a family member um, who's an addict or somebody who's in a terrible relationship, an abusive relationship, or somebody who just won't grow or move forward and you've done everything you can to help them grow and be free and, and nothing helps. And they reject it and they reject it and they reject it. And eventually they maybe reject you because of it. That is normal. Jesus, the greatest leader in, in human history, who to this day he still has 2.2 billion followers around the world, was apparently incapable of leading people where they didn't want to go. Forcing change on people. This is one of those passages that, that all through scriptures, theologians read passages like this, and it, and it leads them to the idea that not everyone honestly can be saved because not everyone wants to be. So people stay where they are. And they don't have a desire to move forward and grow. And so this is something that was going on. Um, and there's a few things you learn from all this. First off, you can't control anyone but yourself. But your level of love, your response, you, you can only work on your heart. You cannot work on their heart. You can pray that, that, that they get work on their heart. You can, you can be, make yourself available. But you cannot change people. Um, Another thing, many of your attempts to reconcile will be rejected. Some people are not ready to reconcile. You have to understand that. Um, you cannot lead people where they don't want to go. And so I've had people come to me and say things like, well, how can I make them see? How can I make them stop? And I have to let them know, you, you can't make them do anything. You can, you can be the mirror image of God in their life. You can represent health and wholeness and humility and call them to it and promise you'll walk with them out of it. You cannot force it on them. And sometimes, like Job's friends, you can just kind of sit with them and observe and listen, but you cannot force change. Um, there's this passage in uh, Isaiah chapter 10 and when you read some of the prophets like Isaiah, they're really interesting. You read, um, it, it seems like gibberish sometimes. There's like these big words that don't make any sense. And there's these phrases. You're like, why are they writing like this? Who writes like this? Who speaks like this? Each one of these writings has a context and a story. When you understand the story, you begin to understand the writing and why it's written the way it is. Isaiah has gone into Israel and he's, he's the prophet of God. He goes to the people and there's several things he was confronting. The people had incredibly poor people that were starving and dying in the ancient world. If you didn't have money, you died. Um, and then there were other people who were incredibly wealthy. And he says, 
You have more than you need. They don't have enough and they're dying. You're not taking care of them. And in the people of God, this is how it was supposed to be. And so he calls them and says, you're not being generous. He says, the, the weights of your scales are basically, the weights of your scales are being leaned upon. Like, like there is injustice. Um, some people are getting away with more than others because they have more honor in the community or more sway or more money. And then he says, so your laws are unjust. The way you're treating your own is terrible. People are suffering in your midst. You're doing nothing to help them. He says, if you continue like this, a common theme through the Old Testament is if you continue in this way, you will be destroyed because this is how nations are destroyed. And Isaiah writes them as this is how destruction falls upon you. And, and over and over and over again, they reject him. They threaten his life. They reject him. And so eventually, he sees they're going to be destroyed. There's nothing I can do. And so he goes into mourning, and he climbs up on top of a mountain, um, a mountain upon which you can see for 10 miles, and he can see where the Israelites are living, and he can see all the other cities in the valley, and he sees the Assyrians, and he describes the Assyrians as... Um, they're, they're who he says God is going to use as his instrument of judgment. And he sees them coming and he sits and he mourns. And with that background, when you read these passages, it brings a little more understanding. You can see the weight of it. You can see the emotion in it. Here's what it says. They enter Aath and they pass through Migron and they store supplies at Michmash and they go over the pass and they say, we will camp overnight at Giba. And Ramah trembles and Gibeah of Saul flees. Cry out, O daughter of Galim. Listen, O Liashah, poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The people of Gibeah take cover. So there's all these people who are just running from the destruction because most of us can see it. Most of us can see this leads to a bad place. This leads to absolute destruction. We're moving. We're getting out of the way. And the destruction is very casual here. You see it? They're stopping. They're storing supplies. They're camping out, cooking stuff over a fire, moving towards the Israelites. Slowly, slowly. Isaiah sees the whole thing. In verse 32, it says, This day they will halt at Nob, and they will shake their fists at the mount of the daughters of Zion, at the hill of Jerusalem. And if you keep reading, it describes the utter destruction and desolation of all of Israel. Wiped out, city burnt to the ground. He describes the forest as in it's all been cut down and there's just stumps and ash covering the whole place. It was this slow-moving destruction. Have you ever seen somebody just slow walk down the path of destruction, the wide path, and there's nothing you can do? You have family members like this. You have friends like this, maybe children maybe parents, and there's nothing you can do to wake them up, and everyone else sees it, and they're not listening. And he describes what happens, and it's just desolation, and it's pain and destruction. But in the very next chapter, he describes what happens afterwards, after it's all wiped out, and here's what he says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. So he describes, there's all this desolation, there's nothing but stumps, and he describes this. He describes a, a shoot, just a little bit of green growing up out of a stump. And he says, and so there's hope. They wouldn't listen. They were wiped out. 
But when it was all said and done, after they suffered and after they went through it all, what I saw was a a little bit of a glimmer of life and wisdom, like they learned something, like they were growing. This is how things work. All through the scriptures, the Christian message is resurrection comes after death. It is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of the seasons when God says, the story of God is written in nature all around you. Spring comes after the winter. And this is the cry. This is the, we are desperate. I, I cannot stop what is coming. And so it comes and it washes over them. And you get to the other side and you say, oh, resurrection. This is a brand new thing. This is surprising. This is the message of Christians. This is, we are resurrection people. And so however far, long, dead, rotting three days in the ground, you have the ladies who didn't want to open up the tomb of Lazarus because they were like, no, he stinks. He's decomposing. And he says, no, no, it's okay. I can bring this back to life. All of this is important to the story of God's people. Oftentimes, it's not till the very death till you bury something six feet in the ground that life will come out of it. Jesus is described as, as this gardener's seed. He's, he's, he's described as, as, as the first fruits to come up out of the ground. New life is coming. And so whatever it is that you're carrying, whatever it is you're terrified of, these people you're trying to reach, just know sometimes it is the path that they must go down first before they can rise up. Do not abandon them. You pray for them. You're present with them. So Jesus gets in this boat and he goes home and he moves on with his ministry. And he regularly sort of dips into these Gentile territories and preaches to them. And some of them start listening and some of them start listening. Eventually, Jesus is murdered by his own people combined with the Roman people, both parties who, by the way, the Greeks didn't like because of the past and the future. And at the end of the book of, of, uh, of Matthew, Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, you're going go to go to the Jews. You're going to go to the Samaritans. You're going to go to the Gentiles. And they go to the Gentiles. And now today, when you open your Bible, you know what you see? You see churches in Romans. Like you see the church in Rome, Corinth, Philippi. These are Greek names. These are Roman cities. Um, Laodicea, uh, Inconium, Lystra. All of these amazing places. Thessalonica, Colossae. All of these Roman Greco-Roman strongholds now have these thriving Christian churches who now, in the midst of all of it, proclaim Jesus is Lord. And they've given up the Caesar is Lord. They're no longer afraid. They're no longer terrified. They've stopped rejecting. And at some point, they receive the message of Christ and they change. And so the hope that we have for those ones that we have been praying for and moving towards, that we are terrified because we see the slow-moving Assyrian destruction moving upon their little city, we have hope. We are resurrection people. Easter is coming, literally. We are resurrection people. And so we don't give up hope. And we pray for them. And we talk about them in hopeful ways. And when we see them, we don't have furrowed brows. They are soft and our eyes are open and we embrace them. We believe people can change. I believe people can change. I've seen people change. This is what the picture of the crucifixion is. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for your resurrection, for your salvation. 
And so we're going to take communion. Our communion servers can go back and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, and I think today we should pray for some patience. Hope means patience oftentimes. I think we should pray for some understanding of the journey. I, I think we should pray that uh, we, we would truly allow ourselves to be um, relieved of the guilt that maybe you carry or, or any shame that you carry for not being able to force somebody to change. It has nothing to do with you. You are responsible for your actions. You move towards them. And you trust God to do the rest. Um, and you do it hopefully. And so our communion servers, you guys can spread around the room and there's two elements. There's bread, which is the body of Christ broken for you. There's wine, it's the blood of Christ spilled for you, for your wholeness, for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us, change us. Give us patience, give us hope. Thank you for your tenacity. You keep chasing us, you keep loving us, you don't give up on us. And you've kept the door open. And we are thankful. And we respond with worship and communion. In your name, amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.